today on Ag News Daily. Joining CPTPP is a huge bonus and, and would have huge benefit um, opening up, for example, the Vietnamese market in particular, uh, which will be um, growingly um, lucrative. Good afternoon and happy Wednesday from the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr joined by Delaney Howell live from the NAFB 2021 conference. Delaney, I really haven't gotten to see you a whole lot. So how have things been so far for you? Yes, that's true. You've been busy doing your social media job with the NAFB organization and I've been floating around collecting Well, I haven't collected any interviews. Today, we're just sitting and listening to a couple of really good sessions. We'll play those, one of those today. But it's just been great to get to see people again. You know, we didn't have this event last year in person. It was, of course, virtual due to the pandemic. So it's always just great to get that in-person vibe that you truly get here in Kansas City. I have attended an NAFB conference, but of course it was virtual last year. So I'm glad that I actually get to put names to faces this year. I got to meet Lori Boyer, who has a show on the Global Ag Network. So now I have officially met two of the hosts from the podcast that we have on the network. So it feels really good to be here. Yes, it, uh, it is always a really great time. And I think we're going to bring folks today some comments from a trade update that we saw here from a couple of folks that were sitting on a panel. And really, a lot of the focus during that trade session was talking about China, because obviously with, you know, the virtual summit that just happened, that's top of mind for folks. And so one of the folks on this panel was, of course, Ted McKinney, who's a former undersecretary. And, you know, so they talked about a lot of different things. We'll bring those comments to you. But one comment that really stuck out to me, Ashton, that he mentioned was that we're getting left behind here in the United States. And, you know, we talk a lot about policy on the podcast, but we really don't know much about the Biden administration's international policy. And there is a reason for that. We found that out today as well. Sounds like really this administration is more focused on a worker-centric, which we'll explain in the interview today, worker-centric policy, also very focused on domestic trade and domestic products as opposed to focusing on that international component. And it sounds like we're having a lot of conversation now about trade. I say a lot, a little bit more than when Biden first took office, there was a ton of question marks, but it sounds like we're having some more conversations now. And one thing that stuck out to me from Ted, he said, when you have dialogue, you solve problems. So hopefully we have, I would like to be optimistic and say all of our problems solved, but you know, there's a little bit of a pessimist in me. So I don't think we're going to see all of our problems solved, but hopefully good things are ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, speaking of good things ahead, it was also mentioned today, of course, that there was a trilateral trade agreement posted by folks today between the U.S., Japan and the EU. And while that doesn't necessarily directly relate to agriculture, it is, again, a step in that right direction. So that's kind of a bit of news there on the trade slash NAFB front, Ashen. But I have to scold each of us a little bit because uh, we missed this big piece of news earlier in the week. And that was that $1.2 trillion infrastructure law is fully implemented and was signed by President Biden on Monday. And we neglected to, at this point, it's probably old news, but we neglected to tell our listeners about that. 
I'm a little bit upset with the both of us that we missed that because you and I kind of went back and forth when things were still being passed through on really what was going through, how much money was being spent. So I'm a little disappointed in both of us. Yeah, we definitely dropped the ball on that one. (laughs) Well, Delaney, one thing that I'm not dropping the ball on today is the news of a new state-of-the-art beef processing plant that is coming to Missouri. So I thought it was pretty timely that we talk about this, seeing that we are live from Kansas City today, but this is going to add some value to Missouri farms and ranches, according to Missouri's Ag Director, Chris Chen. He told Brownfield Ag News that this is not just going to help the livestock industry, but also our grain farmers as well, because the more cattle that are fed out in Missouri, the more feed that will be consumed in this state. And we've, of course, been talking about some implementation of smaller meat processors and starting up those packing plants. So it looks like Missouri is hopping on that train. Yeah, and I think there's going to be a session later on at NAFB convention about processing lines and speed. That is today, it sounds like. So we will bring folks an update on that as well. And I'm sure they'll talk a lot about supply chain and whatnot. But actually, while we're on the topic of supply chain and livestock, I saw this piece of news as well. When you look at that infrastructure package that we just saw signed into law now, livestock haulers also secured a win that I didn't realize was part of this infrastructure bill, Ashton, because, you know, we spent a lot of time maybe two or three years ago talking about electronic logging mandates um, and those electronic logging devices that a lot of livestock haulers were concerned about because the new rules required you after so many hours slash miles of driving to stop and pull over and take a break. But that just is not necessarily realistic when you look at livestock hauling because you have a live animal on your truck and you can't just stop and pull over because that that animal may not make it through your your break so this livestock hauler legislation that was part of that infrastructure package which was of course approved last week had some provisions included by senator deb fisher uh, for the haulers of agriculture and livestock safety act of 2021 which included basically expanded miles for agricultural trucks so they can drive without restrictions of those federal hours of service rule, which limits those commercial drivers to 11 hours of driving and 14 consecutive hours on duty time in any 24-hour period. So livestock haulers are now granted a 150 air mile radius from their origin and destination of their trip, which effectively allows livestock haulers to travel basically an additional 300 miles and still be exempt from this hours of service regulation. So definitely a win there for livestock haulers because we just kind of kept kicking the can down the road with ELD mandates. We got short-term extensions to kick the can down, but now we finally have something in place that will help livestock haulers permanently. Well, another, I would say this uh, isn't a win, but some nice news coming from British Columbia. You know, the first part of this isn't so nice, but just hang in with me as we go through this, but a flight of motorboats, canoes, dinghies, and even jet skis that were operated by farmers raced to move dozens of trapped cows from some cold waters as floods have hit British Columbia this week. So I thought this was a maybe feel-good piece of news kind of today, Delaney, as this group of farmers has really come together to help one another out as they are in these really harsh weather conditions. 
Yeah, absolutely, Ashton. But I want to take things back to the supply chain. It feels like that's a big chunk of my news today is infrastructure and supply chain. Because as you look at other industries that are dealing with supply chain issues, obviously fertilizer has been experiencing that. You know, we talk a lot about shipping containers at the port, having empty cargo ships that are leaving U.S. shores, just an influx of port activity in a lot of our major U.S. ports. But another industry that felt that supply chain crunch last year, that's likely going to feel it again this year is the herbicide industry. They say that those shortages experienced in 2021 may not be resolved in 2022. And they said that this is probably not going to correct itself until at least crop year 2023, according to Mike King, executive vice president of operations for Atticus. And they're saying that the short supply was caused by a couple of things, COVID for one, But it's just been a domino effect that has gotten us to where we are. Tariffs played a role in that back in 2018, 19. And so really all in all, it sounds like some of those post-emergent herbicides are going to be in short supply. So definitely a year to make sure you're getting those things locked in early. Your fertilizer, your herbicides, your seed. I wouldn't make any major bets that things that are usually readily available are going to be readily available in the 2022 crop year. Well, Delaney, you touched on tariffs there, and that kind of segues nicely into this story that I have here, talking about Vietnam, as they have announced that they are reducing tariffs from 15 to 10% on imported frozen pork starting next year. The National Pork Producers Council says that it will allow better market access to the major pork-consuming country. NPPC President Jen Sorensen says that Vietnam's issues with African swine fever have increased the country's reliance on imported pork, and this tariff cut presents an opportunity for our U.S. pork producers. However, NPPC says that the U.S. is still at a trading disadvantage, noting countries in CPTPP. And that's one thing that we talked about earlier today, too, here at NAFB was our relationship and, you know, moving in CPTPP. But we're going to get into that a little bit later in our trade conversation that we're featuring here. But again, this tariff is expected to lower on July 1st, 2022. So some good news there for our U.S. pork producers. Yeah, Ashton, I think that's certainly been uh, support for the lean hog market. You know, we saw them have some explosive moves yesterday. And before we get into markets today, one of the other things besides... Well, really, the only thing it seems like that's been holding up markets so far, especially on the grain side of things, has been demand because we saw additional export sales announced today. Pretty big purchase headed to China of U.S. soybeans, as well as some soybean oil purchased by India, which is a little bit unique. But we also got word that major global wheat importers have been actively have been extremely active in the past week, importing more wheat, not necessarily U.S. wheat. We've seen a lot of other countries as well, but we're seeing a lot of wheat movement across the country, or excuse me, across the world, which really has continued to support the active trade we've been seeing in the wheat markets, which has in turn upheld a lot of the market activity that we've seen today, because really we had some pretty explosive moves, especially in the soybean market today. That pushed this crop push these markets a lot higher today. 
Ashton, what do you say we hop in there and take a look? Do you have any other news? I don't. Let's go ahead and look at the market. Okay, perfect. Well, you know, I've been covering them still for successful farming. You can check out my market commentary on agriculture.com. Um, but I've been paying a lot more a lot closer attention, perhaps, because I'm checking them very frequently to make sure my article is not out of date. Um, but really, we saw in the overnight sessions, grains posted some rallies, and we saw that follow through, that trading action follow through into today's price action. At one point in the day, we did see soybeans break above $13. We didn't quite finish above that today, but we are still seeing a lot of strength in today's markets. Let's kick things off in soybeans, since I'm chatting about that here with January. Today up 25 and three quarters cents, closing at 12.77. The March up 25, closing at 12.88 and a quarter. In the corn pits, really, I think they're just kind of following the leader here, especially with wheat putting on big moves today and soybeans. Corn doesn't necessarily have anything excited about right now to get excited about right now, but they are following suit with those other two grains, pulling them higher as well. December corn today up four and a quarter cent, closing at 575 and a quarter. The March up four to close at 581 and a half. As I mentioned, Chicago wheat continued to push to the upside today as the December contract added 12 cents, closing at 8.22 and a quarter. The March up 13 cents, closing at 8.33 on the nose. Hopping over into the livestock markets, we saw strength today finally in the live cattle complex as the December live cattle contract added 50 cents, closing at 132.22 and a half. The February up 30 cents, closing at 136.40. Over in the feeder cattle markets, we saw a little bit of mixed trade today as the January contract finished lower 35 cents, ending the day at 158.92 and a half. The March up 20, closing at 161.10. And in lean hogs, we saw excitement yesterday about the news of Vietnam allowing some more imports. However, that strength did not carry over into today. December lean hogs down $1.55, closing at 76.17 and a half. The February cutting 22 and a half cents, closing at 83.15. And lastly, wrapping things up here, Ashen, with our class three dairy milk futures. December down a nickel today to close at 17. 16 the January down 24 cents closing the day at 1774. Now Ashton, we're going to do things a little differently. We're going to be bringing people some Q&A portion of today's talk with former undersecretary Ted McKinney as well as a <laughs> former gal who worked for the US Trade Representative's office for quite a few years. So to say she is an expert in trade is probably an understatement, but we're also going to be hearing from Sharon Bomber Lartson of Ag Trade Strategies LLC. Ron Hayes, our Radio Oklahoma Ag Network based out of Oklahoma City. And Sharon, uh, my ears kind of perked up when you mentioned the, uh, the safeguard issue with the uh, Japanese for our U.S. beef. Uh, big customer of ours. Uh, we have gotten uh, obviously tripped a couple of times down through the years with the safeguard. Any opportunity to make that less onerous or maybe get rid of it altogether, you think? Well, I'm actually um, optimistic that that's exactly what USTR negotiators are trying to do as we sit in this room. Uh, we know um, during the negotiations on the U.S.-Japan agreement that what we agreed to on beef, um, the, the numbers that ended up being agreed to were, were tight. We knew we could sell a lot more uh, than, than what was there. Um, and so we specifically had provisions put in that agreement that said, hey, if we hit the safeguard, we want to be able to sit down, negotiate, and possibly make some changes. So my understanding is, based on reporting this week, 
uh, that uh, there are active negotiations <laughs> to try and and try and um, uh, fix that problem and and to move forward so that we can can sell our high quality beef into Japan. See, looking for something from the audience. Not seeing anything. I'll keep going. Um, yeah, if somebody could get that door, that'd be appreciated. Um, Ted, you had mentioned uh, earlier on, or excuse me, I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, go to go to Rob. Oh. Rob Winters, Lowell Radio. Ted, good to see you. Congratulations on your new gig. Um, when you took the new job, well, last time we talked, we talked about some of the new markets that you worked on uh, with USDA. Uh, in your new job, how do you see that maybe affecting some of these things? And do you see an opportunity to maybe rally the troops and do some things to um, uh, go after some of those markets that you were working on? And I'm talking about Africa, India, you know, some of the stuff in Central America that you worked on as well. Yeah, I, I, I got about two-thirds of that, but I think I got the question, and essentially is, will some of the work that I did continue in this role at NASDA? And, and the answer is yes, we're on a pathway to do that. And very clearly, the NASDA board, which are made up of the state secretaries, commissioners, and directors, the different titles sort of mean the same thing, uh, we are. And many people are not aware that this year, about three weeks ago, we concluded the 30th, that's 3-0, 30th Tri-National Accord. That's when the provinces of Canada the states of the U.S. and the states of Mexico come together. And it's been a, a good session. I would say that uh, certainly I want to lift that up and get more productivity out of the Trinational Corps, particularly now that we have a USMCA. So, for example, um, we have an agreement with Mexico and the states of Mexico to have a work group formed to really look into the problems that we're seeing with the President AMLO administration not renewing pesticide registrations or uh, adding new uh, approved pesticides or biotech registrations. Uh, we don't know what will come from that, but if we think, if we have the states of Mexico, the states of the U.S. working on our federal governments, I think that can be a good thing. So that is but one example is the primary outcome, the most exciting outcome of the Trinational Accord. And we want to do more. We've already had uh, an invitation. We extended one, uh, and Canada extended one. They want to have a, a cadence of discussions, as do we, on just topics of interest that we both share. Uh, water, for example, and climate change. What are we doing? Or what are we seeing down here? The same up there. Because to the degree that we can be aligned as three countries, that's a good thing. And I think USMCA so effectively has taught us that. But it does not stop there. Uh, I would say there's a bit of a love affair going on between the UK and its embassy and NASDAQ. And to my, to their credit, my predecessor, Barb Glenn, and her team really started that. Um, I, I, I have met Secretary Eustace, who would be uh, Secretary Bill Sachs' counterpart, a good guy in the UK. I think there's a lot of like-mindedness. And so we intend to do that. Now, let me be very clear. Anything we do is not, repeat, not to displace my beloved friends at the Foreign Ag Service or USTR or, for that matter, USAID or anybody else. We want to be complementary. But I have long been concerned that we don't have enough dialogue between countries. And when you have dialogue, you solve problems. A great one would be 
the great myth in the EU about U.S. chlorinated chicken. If I've heard that once, I've heard it 10, 15 times, and it drives me nuts because almost no chlorine is used as a parasitic or, or as a chlorinated wash to take care of salmonella and other disease. Almost none of it is used in the U.S., and yet there's this myth, and I think a lot of that is the traditional EU approach to uh, protectionism. So those kinds of things, and I think the same can be going for uh, Latin America. Many of you know the IECA group based in Costa Rica. My goodness, what a class group of individuals. And many of the ministers of ag in Central South America, including Canada and the U.S., work with IECA. It's almost an international trade or an international policy arm for many countries uh, of the Western Hemisphere. And the list can go on. Uh, the reason I couldn't be there today is a visit by the Minister of Agriculture from Hungary. Uh, we just got an invitation yesterday to visit because uh, the Minister of Agriculture from Israel is coming and wants to visit with NASDAQ. And so I do see a place for our directors, secretaries, and commissioners, and I'll happily be a part of that as they wish, to support the administration, any administration, never mind political party in, 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 in the White House, to advance this wonderful thing called agricultural trade. And I do mean trade both ways, not just a one-way, but a two-way. And that's how the world needs to operate. Larry. Morning, Sharon and Ted. Larry Lee of Brownfield Ag News Network. On two different occasions, I've had a farmer come up to me and criticize Catherine Tai, uh, saying that she's so focused on this labor-centric policy but not doing enough on trade. Do you feel that criticism is warranted? Was that directed to me or to Sharon, well, Spencer? Maybe I'll, st I'll start. I believe it was to both of you. It looks like Sharon's, since I, uh, since Sharon I'm the is UST, chomping at the bit to start Since here. I'm the USTR person here, or former USTR person here. You know, I think it's actually um, reflective of the president's agenda to focus on the domestic policy. Um, and what I stated earlier, um, a continuation and building on, on the Trump administration's focus on heavy industry here in the United States and trying to, to source that more in the United States um, in order to address concerns with China. Um, and, you know, as I said, there is no export policy, which is what U.S. agriculture says. But one could argue it's a little early. Uh, we're starting to hear snippets of, of uh, interest in engaging in Indochina, although Secretary of Commerce this week said we're not going to join CPTPP, but she said at this time. So it may take a couple of years. Um, most administrations take a couple of years before they want to actually start and engage on proactive uh, free trade agreements, for example. Uh, we still need trade promotion authority. That expired earlier this year. So Congress has a role here to build support for trade policy so that these trade agreements, if they get negotiated, can get through Congress. So it's, it's not easy. It's not simple. But I'll still argue that at the working level, at the civil service level, a lot of work is done every day to try and tear down the non-tariff barriers. So it's um, certainly uh, not yet what it was. Uh, while I was at USDR the past four years, we were very, very busy on the ag front. Um, but, you know, I think time maybe, um, hopefully, once it matures, uh, the domestic agenda, we've got the infrastructure bill done, you know, I think then maybe, hopefully, we'll see 
um, more than just uh, creating opportunities for dialogue, but real substantive negotiations. I'll just add a couple things, and I think Sharon and I continue to be fairly aligned. I want to bring up TPA. Uh, I so hope, I pray that TPA will, in some form, get renewed. And it's only because uh, I think sometimes there's a desire to put our imprint of what trade should look like, what productivity, what production, what workers' rights, all that. There's a desire for us to have the entire world model exactly what we do, and we'll never get that. I mean, look, look at the debates that we've had on the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better bill. You never get exactly what you want. And I worry that if we don't have TPA in some form, we effectively have all of Congress being de facto U.S. trade negotiators, and you can't do that. When I was in the corporate world, I didn't get the chance to offer my views on every decision that the corporation made. Some I did, many I did not. That's not my role. So I think there's a way for Congress to be involved. And I thought that the U.S. MCA was a very good model. It was negotiated by Team Lighthizer, which included my friends Greg Dowd and in front of you, Sharon Bomer. Good, that worked. I think some provisions on labor did get in there. Uh, but I think I worry that if we do away with TPA, we, we effectively can kiss uh, a lot of free trade agreements goodbye, and I think the U.S. is left behind. Stated differently, I just hope we don't make perfect the enemy of the very good. good. Uh, Mr. McKinney, Andy Schwab, Northern Ag Network out of Montana. Hey, we just heard uh, this week with uh, the meeting between President Biden and, and China um, that, that there, China was warning America on uh, uh, the China, or excuse me, the Taiwan trade, and that they're, they're called it playing with fire. Um, was that ever any concern with them when you were meeting with China about um, a Taiwan trade? Because it's, it's certainly a big trade for Montana, where we come from. I missed who that was directed at. It was directed to you, Ted. <laughs> okay. Well, again, I must say I'm, I'm catching about 80% of it. The question is about Taiwan, and so let me just speak generally to that. Taiwan is an outstanding trading partner, and I hope, hope, and beyond hope that uh, mainland China uh, will recognize that uh, the, the current agreement we have, where Taiwan is considered to be part of China, but it's left with some autonomy, is maintained. Because if there uh, is a desire to, you know, enforce, take over, annex, do whatever they might do, I think global trade becomes a very, very, very different picture. And I think a lot of countries and trade generally can be uh, can be harmed with that. So I just hope there's a recognition that um, uh, that we can have the status quo and it can be a great benefit to all of China, including its elements like Hong Kong, like Taiwan. And, and not get into uh, some of the, you know, the annexation, the further takeovers that might uh, that might be uh, being hinted at. I, I believe there's a there there, and I hope that the the need for food for the world, the need for trade through the South China Sea, will cause China to say, "Hey, uh, we've got to keep food flowing." And uh, you know, any aggressive stance on on Taiwan certainly hurts or threatens that. All right, my mental list shows uh, questions coming from Kara and then Bob. 
Thanks for taking my question. My question is for Sharon. This is Kara Hart with the Red River Farm <laughs> Network based in Grand Forks, North Dakota. We cover ag news for North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota farmers. Sharon, you brought up CPTPP, and I've heard from some of the agriculture community possible um, interest if, if the Biden administration would want to focus in back on that, eventually getting back around to it. What do you see as the pros and cons of possibly reentering CPTPP? And I think I've asked McKinney about this before, and we've, we've had a chance to visit about it, which is why I'm asking you. Sure. Yeah, happy to do that since I was um, the agriculture and, and SPS negotiator on TPP. I obviously uh, care deeply about it. Um, so I think for American agriculture, uh, joining CPTPP is a huge bonus and, and would have huge benefit um, opening up, for example, the Vietnamese market in particular, uh, which will be um, growingly um, lucrative. Um, and with other countries wanting to join CPTPP, for example, the United Kingdom, uh, that would provide um, another huge opportunity for American agriculture. So for American agriculture, I see it as very positive. But we have to look at the reality. And I think the reality is, is that the Biden administration uh, will not join CPTPP as it looks like now. Um, if they get to the point where they are ready to join <coughs> Um, I have a feeling they're going to want to have it look more like USMCA, uh, particularly when it comes to, for example, uh, dispute settlement, um, the automotive sector, um, uh, labor environment. So they're going to want to see changes. And if the Biden administration wants to see changes, that's a multi-year negotiation because you've got 12-plus countries that you're having to negotiate changes to. So I, I don't see it as a near-term fix. Um, you know, we are seeing a lot of interest uh, in the Biden administration on the idea of starting the process with the CPTPP countries focusing on digital trade. Um, and so they may take this as a piecemeal piece where if you can get a deal on digital trade, then maybe you expand. But I think it's, um, it's, it's a multi-year process and we'll take the continued support and pressure from uh, U.S. agriculture, U.S. business uh, to try and, and continue to drive um, support within the administration uh, for um, future negotiations. Bob. Thank you. Bob Bosold from WAXX Radio in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and the Midwest Farm Report. And just being from Wisconsin, I assume you'll expect this to be a dairy question, which it is. With USMCA, obviously, with Canada... You're not going to negotiate away internal policy, supply management. But we know Canada, with their Class 7 program that they put in, upset world powder prices, world powder markets, and also obviously kept uh, our dairy out of Canada. What is being done, what's happening, if anything, as far as dealing with that Class 7 situation and making it more favorable? They've, you know, used some lip service to talk about it from Canada, but nothing substantive. Can we expect any movement at all on Class 7 changes coming out of Canada with what we've negotiated with USMCA? Sure. Um, I'm happy to take that on because I was the negotiator on that one, too. Um, and in USMCA, there are two sets of provisions on dairy. One was um, some 
small increased access under tariff-free quotas for U.S. dairy into Canada, uh, which we reciprocated if Canada ever decides to send stuff to us. And then the other set of provisions, as you noted, was on Canada's milk class assisting process, um, and in particular uh, concerns about uh, Class 7 and its previous Class 6. Under the agreement, Class 6 and 7 are gone in Canada as of now. Um, there are some um, additional bells and whistles tied to that. Um, we negotiated provisions whereby uh, Canada uh, has to limit um, exports of, of certain products, milk powders, for example, um, because of the um, unfair competition that we saw happening in third country markets. Uh, so we have provisions that, that are being monitored and tracked very carefully. Um, we have provisions in the agreement whereby Canada has to um, track its pricing uh, comparable to U.S. Uh, pricing for the similar products. Um, now, that being said, um, you know, I know the U.S. dairy industry is tracking all of this very carefully, and I'm sure USDA is as well. Uh, there it does seem to be that um, Canada is maybe um, moving some of its exports into other high-protein products other than the ones that we covered in the agreement, uh, maybe to try and circumvent some of it. But all of that is being watched very carefully and being tracked to make sure that Canada lives up uh, to the um, to the agreement. On the TRQ side, um, I'm sure you know, uh, from uh, July 1st, 2020, um, in my own personal view, Canada did not live up to its obligations that we negotiated on how to administer the tariff rate quotas for imports of U.S. dairy into Canada, um, and the Biden administration initiated enforcement procedures um, when they came in uh, last spring. Um, there was a hearing uh, first time. It was the audio was streamed. I've never seen that before in an enforcement proceeding. Uh, so we would hope uh, that a panel will issue a decision in the beginning of the next year as far as um, Canada, how Canada implemented those tariff rate quotas. Well, Delaney, again, very grateful to be here in person at the NAFB conference. We're going to be bringing people to NAFB really with the next couple of interviews. I say interviews, but the next couple of audio clips that we feature for the rest of the week. So folks, be sure to tune in to that at agnewsdaily.com and rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.